Lifeway Leadership Podcast Network. You're listening to the Five Leadership Questions Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Atkins, and today I'm here with Chandler Benoit. Hey, hey. And a guest who hasn't been on in quite some time. We, we just figured out right before uh, we started that it had been since my co-host was Barnabas Piper. And that... That's way back. It's like five years or like 400 episodes ago or, or something like that. Now, Barnabas did stick around for like the first 200 or something, I think. I think he's still like been around the longest. I believe so. But um, if you didn't listen, if you uh, if you like today's episode, I would really encourage you to go back and find the other one because our guest today is Larry Osborne, who's the teaching pastor at North Coast Church. But you probably know him for, I don't know, the it seems like dozens of books uh, that he's written. Um, sticky church and sticky teams, uh, sticky leaders, uh, you know, that whole, whole sticky scenario. Uh, man, that is something that I know pretty much everybody has read. Um, but other ones you should look at are Lead Like a Shepherd. And we were just talking in Thriving in Babylon, especially during this time. Um, but there's a couple as I looked here that I haven't read. And there's one that, uh, that Larry brought up uh, that I hadn't read either. And that is... Um, a contrarian's guide to knowing God. So I do want him to talk about that because uh, both in both instances, I may ask you more about thriving in Babylon as well, by the way. But um, our guest today is, of course, Larry Osborne. Um, uh, you don't need to know any more about his bio other than he's been at the same uh, at the same church leading in some capacity for the last 40 years. Much of that was in that um, that senior role. Uh, and now still has a senior role, um, but has allowed uh, that to, well, really, what what that looks like. Why don't we ask you, Larry? Um, what does that look like? <laughs> leading for so long. It's really important. This is a really important conversation for us as a whole, because you've got a lot of guys that are coming through uh, ministry right now, and they're in, you know, kind of the probably the latter third of their ministry and they're thinking about transition and they don't know what it looks like, especially when, you know, they're a founder or they've been in their role as senior pastor for so long. So let's start off actually by talking about what that, what that looks like and um, how you're also uh, helping other pastors through that process as well. Sure. Well, when it comes to succession, actually before my own, uh, every single time I dealt with the younger pastor, so I had some sense of what that pain is. And uh, I've always felt it should be pretty short uh, thing, more like 18 months in these five-year plans, six-year plans. It's hard to get a true leader. A second chair will wait, but a true leader won't wait five years uh, usually for something. And so uh, in, in, in my mind, really, you've got to figure out uh, how long you've been there. Like for my wife and I and my whole family to have this, oh, we got to leave the church thing really made no sense. Uh, we spent nearly 40 years of our life. Oh, well, now 40 years of our life here. Uh, so uh, what I am right now is uh, I'm a staff member at a senior level. I'm our street strategic leadership team, along with Chris Brown, who is our lead pastor. I'm on the elder board, uh, but he is clearly the directional leader. I am a, a teaching pastor. He teaches uh, significantly more than I do. I think I teach 16 times, something like that. 
this last year. I hope to continue uh, on the teaching team, but really it's, it's, he is our lead pastor now. That will even be at his prerogative uh, as the years uh, go on. And then the important thing for me was to just figure out I'm going to step aside. The truth is when it comes to transitions, uh, unless you just leave town, which is easy, but has a whole lot of problems, uh, especially if you've been rooted and you love that church and that community. But uh, Chris and I both like to say there are no good transitions. There's only good people. So it's fascinating to me how people have written books about how to do this right and all this stuff. And knowing what I know behind the scenes, I go, it wasn't quite as good as you make it sound but godly people can make uh, weird structures work. Even co-pastoring that Chris Brown and I did for a number of years. We both say it's a monster, a two-headed monster, uh, but we'd both do it again because it was the right thing in that situation. I wanted to win championships, not not say, well, I'm sorry, this has to have my name on it uh, right. You know, for all of these years. Uh, so it worked out great for us, but it was because of who we were. I've never seen it work out philosophically. Uh, when two people decide this is a way to honor Jesus instead of this is a way for us to honor Jesus in this time and in this place. Chandler, I'm sorry. We're probably, I don't know if we'll ever get to our five questions. Today. <laughs> Keep going. I'm talking, I'm talking to this guy. So one of the things that you struck, that just struck me when you were talking is that, um, you know, I always tell pastors, I'm going to use your sticky word for a second, uh, that, that your people are are stickier than your preaching, no matter how, Sticky your preaching is, it's the people that are going to engage them in the church. But one of the things that you just said was really interesting. It matters the most about the people. So a lot of guys will try to run a specific process that has worked somewhere else or maybe a program. Uh, so talk to me about the importance of people versus process or program. Well, the first of all, the paper process usually is a long runway and it, it, uh, is the, the lead pastor picking who that person is going to be. And when they go and do that, they're usually not picking a threatening, strong leader. They're picking a strong, great supporter who's a wonderful part of the team. Right. Uh, and that's why the business world and ministry, there's been so many failures of, of picking it yourself. Uh, in our road, we had a very easy thing because of the co-pastoring. Chris more than proved himself as a highly respected, greatly gifted, not only communicator, but leader. So that made the transition to him leading, uh, you know, much, much easier. Uh, you know, he wasn't and it's not an ego. He wasn't going to wait around a whole bunch of years while I say, let all the marquee be me and then you'll get your chance. And I wouldn't have either. Uh, big L leaders need to lead. Uh, that's why I left a youth ministry job I had when I was 28 years old to come down to uh, uh, North Coast Church. Uh, I took a huge cut in pay. The church was, I think, 70 adults my first Sunday. I had to add this huge youth group. It was the second largest, now they're called Converge Baptist General Conference back then, church. And they all thought, like, what's wrong with you? You're getting to preach in an era. At I started at 24, and that size of church getting to preach whenever the pastor didn't want to preach, you know, Labor Day and all that stuff. Uh, <laughs> but still, back in that era, that was a big deal. There weren't teams like uh, we started later on. Uh, and they couldn't understand why I did it. It was, well, I want to fly. And, uh, you know, you've got my wings clipped in this cage. You pay me well, treat me well, give me perks. But I want to see what happens if, if I get to carry out this dream. And, and the other piece I would say is the problem with most processes 
is uh, somebody looks along and they say, you know, five years from now, I don't think I want to be doing all of this. Uh, and so at the halfway point, if they've got a really good person coming on, they go, wow, this was the fastest two and a half years of my life. Maybe I'll stretch a little longer. I made my, you know, that kind of goes on. Right. Well, the person waiting in the wings goes, this has been the longest 25 years of my life. Yeah. Uh, and so that's why I say it's good people. Uh, a Barnabas spirit and a David honoring Saul spirit. Hopefully the leader's not Saul in the bad side, but the role side. Um, if you've got that, you can make most anything work. Uh, and and nobody's willing to say, Chris Brown and I don't want to sit down and, uh, and open up and say, hey, here's a list of all the little rough spots and whitewater we had. You know, it's it's worked out re really well kingdom wise. It's worked out really well church wise. But uh, it's never an easy situation. You know, uh, I think Chris is the one who coined this phrase. He says, you know, the Bible says a lot about ego, none of it good. Uh, but the fact is, we all have ego. And whether you're going to co-pastor, you're going to be a partnership, uh, or you're going to uh, do a successor role, there's going to be ego stepped on. And, you know, you've got to, a lot of us preach our theology a lot better than we live it. Now you're just meddling. <laughs> why why did you do that? Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You know, in all seriousness, my wife and I have talked about this so many times because she'll go, well, how did you handle this or that over all the decades of leadership? And I just say, hon, I really believe what I preached. I, I wish that didn't make me weird. Uh, but, you know, it's uh, servanthood and all kinds of other things. Uh, you can, oh, they preach really well. But then when somebody treats you as a servant, it's suddenly, well, listen, I was just pretending. I wanted everybody to know Pastor Larry was setting up chairs. Like, dude, you think I really am part of the facility team. It's like, well, no, according to Jesus, that's a good thing. Hmm. Well, Larry, let's, let's move in. You mentioned to uh, the 40 years of leadership and along the, along the journey, there are many influences along the way to get you to where you are. So who or what has been the greatest leadership influence in your life? Well, I, you know, I knew that question was coming. So I just for a few seconds, I thought, um, you know, and I three just always keep coming to mind. First of all, my dad, my dad is still alive and very healthy. Uh, and we were blessed for that at 93 years old. Wow. And uh, but I, I never had a father wound, whether it was academics or I played some sports. I never felt there was a difference between I scored a bunch of points and no points. I wasn't loved more, honored more, applauded more. So I feel like often I started life at, at third base, uh, zero father wound, very easy to convey that to my understanding that Jesus loves me and I'm supposed to do my best, but then take a nap. And he, he, he didn't love me more when our church grew poorly, less when our church grew poorly or more when it exploded. Uh, and I think a lot of people are still trying to prove themselves, sometimes to a dad that's not even alive anymore. Uh, I had a mentor who supported that, a guy named Wally Norling, who taught me the power of uh, fruit that grows on someone else's tree. Uh, that uh, if you're going to be all about the fruit that's identified with you, you'll never have as much fruit as if you freely try to help, you know, make an orchard, not just a fruitful tree. Uh, and then um, kind of just business wise, there was a guy named Bob Beal, who still does some consulting, but was a consultant to lots of people, Christian. And uh, Peter Drucker, uh, early on, I, I, I like economics and I would read his stuff and his management stuff. And 
they probably had the most structural influence on me and the core influence on me would be my dad and Wally. That's they good. taught me, like I said, do your best and take a nap is something I tell <laughs> guys. And I really, I, I, I believe it. And they supported that. They didn't always tell me work harder, work harder, just do your best under the circumstances and take a nap. It's his, his kingdom, not yours. I, I wonder how many guys, because I love Drucker as well, um, and Porter. So between uh, Drucker and Michael Porter, I'm like, I wonder how many, I wonder how many pastoral church leadership things stem from Porter <laughs> or Drucker, and pastors have no idea. Totally, totally. I, I get when somebody's hot, uh, gets a huge promotion, maybe. Uh, COO or CEO of a organization or whatever. I give them some advice. And one thing I like to give them is an old copy. I think it was published in 45 or something long before I was born of Peter Drucker's effective executive. Oh, so good. Uh, and uh, what I go, it's going to be a little laborious His writing is not always today's U S uh, uh, you know, USA today type of simplicity, right. but uh, all the stuff that Covey or anybody writes about now in terms of leadership, priorities, management, the seed of all of that is found in, in his book. And one of my favorite things I own is a signed copy before he died of my dog-eared hard copy where I wrote in the margin and underlined and, and wrote things like won't work in the church, you know, marketplace only. Then it's crossed out and goes, Oh, he was right. Uh, <laughs> Actually. So I, I, I got to spend three days with him one point before he died. And I brought that mm -hmm. dog eared copy and uh, personal signed worthless on eBay. Cause it's personalized, invaluable to me. Mm -hmm. uh, do you know the name Edgar shine? No, I don't. Uh -uh. Oh, so um, almost anything organizational leadership wise in the last, I don't know, almost 60 years comes from shine. Like just find an old academic or just find an old textbook and it will be horrible uh, to wade through. But there's so much gold there. Yeah. Um, actually, uh, and I'm going to test Chandler right now. Um. I was looking at uh, strategy, like I, I get deep in the weeds on, on subjects from time to time. So if, as soon as I get uh, something pops into my head, I start to study it and I go deep in the weeds. And my theological brethren, yes, I had Greek and Hebrew, uh, but I didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> so they all say back to the sources and I say back to the sources as well. So there was an HBR article that um, I was reading last week and it referenced a white paper from the eighties on strategy and different types of strategy. Chandler, did you read it? I read it. I skimmed it. Oh, this is good enough. <laughs> I'll take it. Um, but one of the things, and I'm very eager to talk to you about this because of what I think you have done intuitively in your leadership style. So this was about it. it people usually that when they think strategy, they think, well, okay, well, this is just strategy, but it was like, no, no, no. There's several times, there's several types of strategy. But you really start out with an intended strategy and then a realized strategy on the other end. And how you get there is either deliberate or emerging or entrepreneurial or all these different kinds. But um, the deliberate strategy 
requires you to have control over everything, freedom from control. And the emerging is, okay, I'm taking advantage of whatever's emerging. And most of us, I think, um, because I work with a lot of church planters under Lifeway Leadership and when Daniel was here, um, we still do that work. Uh, And then a lot of legacy churches and all those things. So um, guys usually either try to go the completely planned, deliberate route, or they tend to fly by the seat of their pants and do the emerging route. I would like to ask you, sir, um, how do you see those th- two things uh, playing out and and how did you utilize both? Because when I hear you talk, I see a man in a boat with two oars who is uh, able to say, ah, deliberate, deliberate and then emerging, emerging, so that I'm rowing in the direction I want to go, not just going in circles. Well, I'd probably be more on the emerging side if I had to pick one of those two things on a continuum, Uh, the way I've led over the years and the way I still lead the things I lead. I, I, I describe it this way, though. In fact, when I'm mentoring or coaching my clients, uh, you know, the churches I work with on a closer basis, uh, I discourage them from having goals uh, because I say when you have goals, you immediately move to metrics. And when you move to metrics, you artificially try to reach them. Uh, and instead, I use the word direction. And like Lewis and Clark, we're, we're headed out to find out the Northwest Passage. We know which direction we're going to go. And the weather and uh, whether, uh, you know, the white water's too strong, all kinds of things are going to determine how far we get. And if we're too metrics oriented, we're going to keep pushing through a winter we shouldn't, uh, and we're going to lose lives. Uh, if, if we're too just kind of, well, let's go an opportunity, we'll never get to the, <laughs> we'll never get to the coast. Right. Uh, and so to me, it's a combo of those things. And along the way, sometimes you figure out, oh, we got to the coast, but there is no Northwest Passage. Huh. That's kind of weird. So the whole thing we were looking for, and I found that in my life, that many of the things North Coast is most known for, uh, as far as being innovative, or we're on the front edge, obviously, video venues and the multi-site thing, but uh, uh, teams, uh, ministry teams, team teaching, uh, sermon-based small groups, all of those, at one point, I was considered weird to be doing, and they they did not flow fully emerged. Uh, they were directional. Uh, I need time to think about leadership. And right now with this church of 280, which is where we were when we started a teaching team, uh, I, every week I wake up thinking about James four, uh, when I'm in town or whatever passage I'm preaching. And if I'm, uh, not preaching it's cause I'm speaking somewhere on vacation. Uh, so therefore, I'm still the only guy. I need I need relational margin where people think someone else has keys to the kitchen. That's only going to be there if someone else is significant when I'm there, not just as a substitute. And then the other piece is I need margin to wake up and go, why does our website suck? Uh, which will never be the first thing in my mind when I've got a sermon. Uh, so that was a directional thing. How do I find margin to work on the church instead of being in the church to use the modern day phrases? Uh, and how do I get it? So everybody doesn't think I'm the only one who can do a wedding. And again, we were less than 300 adults when that happened. Right. Uh, But it was a directional thing then takes on, it's like a game plan. I think people lead either blueprint or game plan. And I, I think the best way to lead, and especially today, is the game plan. 
you've got a structure, but when you're down, say, say you decided what we're going to do, we're going to burn the clock because this other team's offense is so great. Well, if you're down 21, nothing because of two, uh, six, uh, <laughs> six picks and, uh, uh, you know, uh, kickoff that was returned for a touchdown, then you better throw that game plan away. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of how I see that thing. Very uh, directional, which creates a in pencil uh, uh, metrics of goals. I really liked your analogy of Lewis and Clark. And as you're talking about that, you're, you're going in the direction you're trying to lead. And just as you said, you might get to the end and there is no Northwest passage or there might be a failure along the way as you're leading in a direction, especially as you were talking about, there are, you might be the first one charting new territory. So as you look, uh, you know, back on your ministry, what is, what is maybe your favorite leadership failure story? And then how did that help you design the game plan? Well, all the failures suck. Okay. <laughs> there's, no, there's no favorite. And the only reason I have a favorite is because I'm a speaker and I can use it to, you know, go, oh, that's a good story. But other than yeah. that, I, I, there are courses I'm glad I took, but I will never sign up for again. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, and probably by far is the first three years, what Nance and I call the dark years. We grew by one person. Uh, unbeknownst to me, because actually when I came here, there were 70 adults, quickly grew 100 adults. And because I was young, we had a million rugrats, but I'm using the adult attendance. Uh, we had 100 probably within five, six weeks of me coming, new guy, et cetera. And then over the next year, we grew by one total person. So if you're challenged at math, that's a third of person a year. That'll write a lot of books. Uh, but I had had two extremely large youth groups, the largest in the history of the two churches. Everything I'd touched had turned to gold. And now my Midas touch was not producing gold. It was producing mufflers. Uh, and uh, it was like, oh, my gosh, what's going on here? But during that time, I realized I was using the people I had to reach the people I wanted to reach. It's part of where Lead Like a Shepherd came out of is understanding uh, you're called to be a shepherd. You're not called to create a legacy. You're not called to create a ministry. Uh, God does not give me a flock. He gives me to a flock. And that, that, that's a huge turnaround in stuff. And I think out of that failure, all kinds of things happened. Uh, I learned that I had too much identity, even though I started out, I don't have a huge issue with my identity and success. I still had more than I ever thought. Uh, I learned that, uh, I need to just take care of these people. And if we kept growing by one, uh, a, every three years, we might hit 200. If I live like Methuselah, <laughs> uh, the whole sense of not preaching about being faithful, but being faithful, uh, and, and to my shock, things took off. Now, the one downside of telling that story is people think, well, when you bury all your dreams and just embrace what you've got, you'll explode in growth. And I go, no, 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 you're missing the point. It's not a trick to explode in growth. It's a trick to be healthy. Uh, because the next year we grew by 15. And the next year, it, it took till year five before I, I could hire a staff person. So it wasn't suddenly a turnaround where, oh, this is amazing. Uh, but what I was is I was a different person. I'm like, okay, God, I'll play whatever part you want in the kingdom. And this is not the part everybody told me I would play or I envisioned, but it's your assignment. And it allowed me to take a nap, <laughs> do my best and take a nap, if you will, and go, okay, I'll never be pastor of a big church. Um, that's the way it's going to be. 
Hmm. So, so you mentioned going back to the kind of the game plan analogy, kind of learning what the circumstances give you. You know, you're down 21. You can't run the same playbook that you had originally. There's a lot of churches who are sitting there right now with their playbook and going, what what we started with 2020 is not working. Well, we've we, we were changing things. And, you know, they may pick up a, a book of sticky church or sticky teams to try to figure out how do we lead through this. What would you say from from your experience during this time? And also, you know, as you said, you're, you're speaking with churches, maybe just two to three things that you've learned about kind of the overall game plan of the church right now with with COVID coming in and just really what has changed. Hey, here's here's just on a broad scale. Here's some changes we need yeah. to look at. The metrics that we're looking at are right. not the same, but we still have a mission that has not changed. I sometimes do a talk called We're Not in Kansas Anymore that has six uh, unchangeable things. Back to what we talked about earlier, Peter Drucker, uh, he predicted the failure of the social safety net in Europe and immigration problems way before. Well, he didn't have a crystal ball. He didn't see around corners. No one can. He saw the unchangeable present, which was zero birth rates. If you have zero birth rates now, you're not going to have enough people to support the pensions and the social safety net later. And you're going to have to uh, bring in a whole bunch of people to do the stuff that 18 to 28 year six year olds do. That's all. So when I look around now, I think the unchangeable future, uh, there's a series of them. But one of the most significant is uh, we live in a culture of tribes. Uh, echo chambers that we all live in now. And for we've always lived in echo chambers, but we didn't know it uh, because uh, echo off. It's <laughs> 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 got all excited. So <laughs> for those of you listening and wondering, what was that in the background? Uh, so, uh, but uh, those, uh, those chambers, uh, we, we've always lived in them, but they used to be geographic. So if you lived in the South, you thought the whole world thought that way. And say, as a pastor, you tried to now pastor in the Northeast, you bombed because, oh, it's different. Or the West Coast or the Midwest, we had these. Well, now our chamber, echo chambers are by choice. Uh, And so we live next door, even in the same household. Uh, I often go back to when I did youth ministry, there was youth music. Well, I had three kids, by the grace of God, still walking with Jesus as adults and excited about uh, the kingdom. But uh, those three kids raised in the same home, same church, walking with Jesus, uh, don't know anything about each other's music uh, because uh, they had their iPod. They had uh, heart radio. They had Spotify. They had yeah, you name it. Uh, and uh, we, we now live where we, uh, we we choose the world we live in informationally. Uh, And so kingdom wise, what's that mean? This new territory, we need to cooperate beyond, you know, combined work days. Uh, We need to have a true kingdom mindset to reach our communities like we've never had before, because there was much more commonality. Uh, That's one of the things at North Coast we've worked really hard on to work closely and speak well of the other churches in our community, uh, because that's that's a new world we were in pre-COVID and coming out of COVID. Nobody can reach your community anymore because your community is is a mosaic of uh, same words, different dictionaries. Have you seen anything? Um, have you read any articles or seen anything on the well curve? No, Larry. So, you know, traditionally we, we look at a bell curve, which is like, OK, here's the median, here's the average. And it is at the crest. And so the well curve actually is an inverted bell curve. 
And so what it's saying is, hey, um, what we're seeing now is, you know, the disparity between the rich and the poor or this idea and that idea or this group of people and this group of people, whatever. It, it's basically that there isn't an average, there isn't a median because everybody is getting shoved in one end or the other of the spectrum. And it's really not just two dimensional and it's really three dimensional, which. You yeah. Know, what it is, is it's the echo chambers have created that, uh, you know, again, there's no news now. People don't listen to be informed. They listen to be confirmed in their viewpoint. Uh, and they quit listening if they don't agree with it. Uh, they quit reading if they don't agree with it. They quit your church if they don't. And if people bemoan consumerism. I go, no, it's always been that way. You just didn't have the choices. Right. So uh, people bemoan the fact that today we have a hard time uh, having dialogue. Uh, and that's, again, the echo chambers created it. It's not the political situation or personalities. They created it. Uh, and the thing is, those of us who most hate the fruit of it are not willing to give up choices. That's why I say it's an unchangeable future. Because yeah. everybody who says, oh, these echo chambers, all of this are so terrible. I go, great. Can we go back to just three network TV shows? Can we go back to just AM radio? Can we go back? And they go, oh, no, I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. Well, I go, the absolutely predictable uh, uh, fruit of a culture in which everything is have it your way is everybody's different. Everybody's living in a, di a different little universe. And I've yet to find anybody who says, oh, okay, I'll go back uh, uh, to not having things my way. So, so we better figure out how to do ministry in that environment. And one of them is we need to think like Starbucks instead of churches. Churches historically have thought as if your, your church is the castle, the kingdom, reach as many as we can. Uh, Starbucks doesn't care if I quit going to this one and start going to that one. The branch manager, I mean, the manager's store does, but Starbucks doesn't. They don't even care if I go to Seattle's Best because they own that too. <laughs> well, whoa, if we would begin to have that mindset about his kingdom and we're just uh, store managers, be all the difference in the world. That's, that's a great perspective to have and, and a shift that, I mean, just as you're speaking on that, it is letting go of you, you know, kind of the manager, you holding all the pieces, you, and you're talking about even your identity, you're letting go of your identity and saying, Lord, you're, you're giving me whatever flock I have. And we're going for the, the flock that is global. Yeah. In, in the real world, let me give you two examples because we see it this way that we've done over the years. Uh, we have a college career pastor with a huge ministry. He wanted to plant a church and keep his family in the same community. So he planted a church about four or five miles from our church that's in a different tribe. It's not a North Coast plant. We gave him the same amount of money we would have if it had been the other. Uh, and we made it clear it's not a North Coast church, but uh, you want to go, grow. Uh, that's a kingdom mindset. And I'm amazed uh, at how he says all his friends are freaked out because they would have been fired uh, had you know, we knew for four years that was his dream. And we kept saying, hey, as long as you're loyal here and helpful here and do a great job, great. And when it's time to come and the Lord opens the door, go, go for it. We helped another church that's of our own tribe, but kind of a different bent. Uh, uh, we helped them get a campus across the street from one of our campuses, literally. 
hey, here's our real estate guy. Here's the things we've learned about campuses and warehouses, et cetera, because you're reaching people we can't reach and we need them to buy the coffee. Hmm. I was about yeah. to say, that's a real Starbucks because it truly is one on every corner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what we do is we all have a kingdom mindset as long as it's overseas or more than 35 minutes away. Hmm. That won't cut it. So good. It's also going to be interesting to look at what the irreducible minimum is. Minimum viable, uh, I don't want to say minimum viable product because that just sounds horrible when we're talking about the gospel. <laughs> but, you know, for me, part of what we're, we're dealing with is 30 or 40 years of, of church growth movement, for better or for worse, this, this is where we are. And so I'm curious in wondering what it's going to look like as that gets undone. And well, I don't think it's going to get undone, actually. I think it's a both and world. And, and we always jump to conclusions like the big box days are over or the small church doesn't have anything to offer. They offer something different. I work with a, a ton of church planners like you over time. And, and I remember the early days of North Coast. We could not offer anything better. When I first came, <laughs> we were like at the bottom of every Yelp list and everything we offered. But my wife and I could offer ourselves. Right. Okay. That was one thing I could beat any church in town. It's like, hey, you want to go to lunch? Hey, you want to do this? You want to do? And and over time, what I have to offer uh, later on was not that. I had no margin for that. But boy, we could offer a great children's program. We could offer a, and 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 there's some people they want connection with a pastor. Uh, there's some people they want connection with the community. They want to be important and be uh, have a, a real significant role. They don't care if the preaching's not so good. Uh, there's other people. Oh, I want the best program ever. Uh, you know, Amazon's percent of the retail market, I, I forget what I just read, it's tiny. Uh, there's there's all of these opportunities to reach people in all kinds of different ways. Uh, and I think the as his church, he's going to continue to do that. What's uh, fascinating is we, I mean, it's been a couple of years now, but we had Simon Sinek on and he was talking about Amazon versus Walmart and all these different things. And he was like, watch, watch what Walmart does. Cause at that time, Walmart was getting its teeth kicked in. And then within a year, Walmart just came roaring back and took back a ton of market share. The reason why I asked that question the way I did though, was because yesterday um, I, I'm in the process, I have four children. I'm in the process of taking those four children individually to go buy presents for the other four, the other children and their mother. And um, we stopped because we couldn't find the Legos we wanted. And I was like, you know, I wonder if uh, Dollar General, because I'm, I'm fascinated by Dollar General as well and their rise. If you want to do some really interesting reading, uh, look at Dollar General store in the last five years uh, and go ahead and Google in most parts of the country where you live, wherever you're listening to this. Uh, you can Google a uh, dollar store and swing a dead cat in any direction and hit one. They're everywhere. And the interesting thing about it is their product selection and who their niche audience is and, and all of that. So I appreciate you responding the way you did because I'm like, yes, it is going to be both. It's going to be Walmart. It's going to be Amazon and it's going to be D and G. 
Um, but I was at four different Walmart or four different uh, Dollar General stores yesterday with it, but they were all within three miles of each other. It was fascinating. Um, and it may sound like I'm running a rabbit, but I'm not. Uh, I promise. What what I'm thinking about is, you know, you're you you're totally right to say, hey, Walmart will always be there. The the big the bigger church that has that offers pretty much everything. Um, is always going to be there. I'm just curious about what the, I don't know, almost the mix or assortment of things that are going to be. Because if you look at, in my opinion, how we drifted uh, a little bit in the last however many years is we moved from a centralized denominational heavy, you know, hand where you had specific scopes and sequences where people designed to, you know, go through these different programmatical elements. But the reality is what made them uh, work was the people equation of it, not necessarily the program. In my opinion, it was the people in the process. It was a good and godly people in nowhere, Kentucky that made me who I am today. And they weren't pastors. They were farmers and factory workers who couldn't ask me a good coaching question to save their life. Yeah. Well, the church is always uh, the, the, the weekend service is simply a catalyst for discipleship. If discipleship is taking the next step of obedience, which starts from, I don't know, Jesus from a loaf of bread to the apostle Paul writing scripture saying in Philippians, I still press on and strain. Uh, right. We, we've, we've, we've turned uh, discipleship into finding Christians and making them better Christians. <laughs> discipleship biblically is a pattern of coming to Jesus and growing to full maturity. Until, as he said in the Great Commission, you've taught them to obey everything I taught you. And it's not necessarily becoming a leader and all this other stuff. We've kind of confused it as, you know, Navy SEAL Christian or something. But once we understand that, uh, I, I, I think everything about the way we think about church changes. Uh, because if if our role is to help people take the next step of uh, obedience so that they can live out the one another's of scripture. Once a church hits three or 400, it's too big to do that. It's a catalyst event. Your youth group is a catalyst event at a period of time in their life. But at the end of the day, you judge people's walk with Jesus by their family, uh, by their close work relationships, by their friendships. Do they live out the one another's of scripture? That's the fruit, you know, the, the fruit of the spirit the love of 1 Corinthians 13 and all of these one another's that in a non-mobile culture, like the New Testament was written in, in a non-mobile culture, all of these things we work so hard to create, we're just assumed and we're right there. Okay, people tell me, oh, we're really tight in our little church. We meet three times a week. I go, yeah, but you drive to the meeting. I want to tell you, when I drive to any meeting, I can clean up my act from what I was to what I appear to be really easily. Uh, you can't do that in a non-mobile culture where people live three or four generations there. So what's happened is we're in this weird zone throughout human history now that started with the automobile, frankly, uh, which is in human history, pretty recent. Uh, and we've just going through these iterations trying to figure it out. And uh, yeah, the, the churches that tried to say, we'll go you know, birth to death with you, that's not, that's not the future. Uh, people are going to be at North Coast for a period of time, and then they're going to need something else. And it's okay if we think of ourselves as the kingdom. It's horrible if I think of myself as, oh, I'm the church. We actually lost some people 
to another church because they're the hot thing in town or they have relational things or or they have an organ or a choir or God knows what. But if I can wise, I could care less. Uh, we're, you know, I, I'm always trying to help pastors. You're not building a business or a resume or a legacy. You are a mist here today, gone tomorrow. Do your part. And uh, the only legacy you have, the only legacy you have is with your, your spouse, your children, your closest friends. No one remembers their great, great grandfather unless he was famous or infamous. Hmm. So why, you know, millennials get shot at for wanting a self-important change the world job. Boomers are just as bad. They just use the word legacy. And both of them are self-deceived. <laughs> you know, when I'm walking around North Coast in a walker, people are going to point, who's the old guy in the walker? They don't want to wish they were me. But uh, so, uh, again, just do your best, take a nap, uh, prepare the horse for battle. Victory or defeat belongs to him. Proverbs 21, 30 and 31. Favorite passage. Well, um, we've now gone 40 minutes and I told you we would go 35. This means we really like you, by the way. And this is a pleasant conversation because we only got in two questions. So I'm going to let Chandler ask the last question. And do my best not to uh, disrupt it with another another talk. No, we can we can keep going. And just That's as we for me, what my I love my job because I basically get to ask you whatever I want, uh, whatever's on my mind, and um, pick your brain. And everybody else gets to listen. So, great. <laughs> yeah, we have we have three left, and I want to choose this one because I know that. You, you, you've written a lot of books and you're, you're speaking with a lot of church leaders and even just doing a lot of reading yourself now. Out of everything that's going on, if you could teach one course right now on any topic, what would it be and why? Well, it'd be leadership. Well, I'm assuming two leaders and it would be leadership for the long run. Uh, because I think too many of us uh, live a sprint life instead of a marathon life. Uh, you see it everywhere. Uh, uh, we, um, let, let me just take parenting. Uh, think how much everything would change if you thought the end goal was a 30-year-old instead of an 18-year-old getting into the right college. Mm-hmm. Would you really care that they played varsity or didn't play varsity sports, that they their GPA was everything it could have been? I mean, just, you know, I tried to raise my kids with the idea of 30-year-olds is what I was raising, and they've all now hit 30. And I'm blessed with what the product was, but that made a whole lot of things that I had friends have angst over. No big deal. Uh, you know, it's not about maximizing your potential. It's creating a godly man or godly woman very differently. Uh, we all overestimate what we can do in one year and greatly underestimate what God will do in five. This, this whole long run thing is just so important. Uh, even the reward, Peter uh, in First Peter 5 says, you'll receive your reward when uh, uh, the Lord returns, okay? When the chief shepherd appears. And I always like to ask people, has he appeared yet? No. So Peter doesn't have his reward. Hmm. Why are you so judging every metrics for the payback? You know, like, oh man, nothing's happened in the first three years. Nance, we've grown by a third of person a year. Let's leave. <laughs> I can't tell you how many people I had tell me that. Larry, everything else has been successful. This clearly isn't the time. This clearly isn't the place. But the thing was, folks, I'm not called to be successful. I'm called to be obedient. This is where he told me to be. 
And, you know, this might be my lot in life. Great. Embrace it. And once, like I told you earlier, I, I learned to do it. It was fine. Um, but if I was judging everything by the five-year plan, ah, this isn't cutting it. And uh, a, a life and ministry that went far beyond anything I ever dreamed of would have never happened. Because right as uh, I hit the 11-month mark, I'd say, I guess there's no promised land. You know? that's. I know there's many listening right now who are in that, they, they're looking there and, and they're feeling just what you just said. Hey, I am three years in, you know, fill in the blank for whatever situation you're in. And you're saying, are, is it time to leave? And I go back to, I love, I love the quote that you've been saying over and over again, do your best and take a nap. It's, it's the Lord is building his church. And if, if it's going to build, if it's going to grow, it's going to be because of the spirit. Yeah. And I'm just so yeah. thankful for that reminder. Yeah. You won't, you know, I always tell people, if you don't learn to give when you're poor, you won't, you won't tithe when you win the lottery. Mm. And if you can't learn to find peace, again, it's always better to win than lose. I'll, I'll grant you that. But if you can't learn to find peace in circumstances that aren't great, guess what? You'll still not be at peace when they're great. Mm. That's there's it's all, everything's a mirage once you get there. Well, Larry, we, we uh, look forward to the course when you put it out. I know it's uh, going to be coming soon. <laughs> Just kidding. But no, it's, it is a much needed course and uh, definitely something for all of us to ponder of how to lead for the long haul. And thank you for giving us such a great example of how to do so. And Thank you also just for joining us on the podcast today and walking through normally the five leadership questions. Today it was three, but we asked a lot of great questions <laughs> and uh, thankful for, for you to be able to hop on with us and share your time. So thank you for your time and for you listening. We hope this is helpful to you and your leadership. If it has, head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review to let other leaders like yourself find the podcast. And we'll see you next time.